0: following messages by pastor steve lee of emmanuel community church more information about the ministry of emmanuel community church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org so two weeks ago i preached on jeremiah 29 and last week i mentioned that i wanted to revisit it because um Although I talked about it under this theme of the Lord's discipline and how God uses discipline to draw us back to himself in relationship with him, I did mention that there's this whole other element to that passage that I kind of skipped over, and intentionally so. It's this whole mission aspect to it. And uh, I was actually intending to preach on it last Sunday, but I felt like it would be more appropriate to hold off on that and preach it today in light of the fact that we had Michelle coming and visiting us and giving her her mission presentation and so that's what I want to do today is to come back kinda of swing back around to Jeremiah 29 and look at it from a bit of a different perspective than the way I unpacked it uh, two weeks ago I want to begin this morning by talking about this idea of missing the point okay missing the point um, and I, I want to illustrate it through little bit of a, some humorous examples and I, I want to apologize anyone who's gonna hear this through the podcast the visuals are really important and so it just tells you you should come to service okay and uh, <laughs> and so otherwise you're missing half the sermon with the slides that we show uh, this mouthwash advertises 24-hour protection against bad breath uh, but if it lasts 24 hours why do they say use it twice a day right seems to sort of miss the point of what 24-hour protection means right the owner of this building seems to have installed a new lock in his building but i don't know if you could actually read it if we, if you advance it you can zoom in there um it seems to defeat the whole purpose of having a lock if you're going to post the combination right on the door itself so that everyone can pretty much get in. I think the landowner, the building owner, was basically missing the point, okay? Um, Have you ever highlighted a book this much? (laughs) Because everything is just so important on that page, right? Um, The truth is I'm guilty of this myself. I, I think I actually have entire pages in some of my books that are completely highlighted, but here is actually a philosophical thing, thing to ponder on is if everything is highlighted, then nothing is highlighted, okay? if you really stop and think about that, right uh, It seems to miss the whole point of highlighting is you're supposed to highlight something um, If you're going to make and sell HDMI cables for television sets, maybe your name of your company shouldn't be just wireless, okay so it's <laughs> it, it just seems to miss the point of what wireless means when you're selling wires to people, okay? Lastly, this bakery sells muffins with a label that says Four Secret Center Lemon Muffins. So it's so tempting. You want to buy these muffins to know what's the secret inside the center of these muffins. Except the problem is that on that same label, it says... Lemon-flavored sponge with an oozing lemon curd middle, okay? But it's a secret, right? Don't tell anyone what's inside. I mean, these are kind of humorous examples, but I think we've all dealt with the frustration of working with somebody who just seems to have totally missed the point about something, right? And you're trying to explain it, but they just don't get it, what it is that they don't understand or maybe the truth is you yourself have had an embarrassing situation where you realize you are the one that missed the whole point and you embarrassed yourself in front of others the reason why I start with this introduction is because that's the whole theme of what's happening here in Jeremiah 29 it's as if the people of God the Israelites had missed the point of their entire existence why it is that God created a nation out of them and what God's plan with them, and they failed in a colossal, epic way of missing the point for what God's plan was for their lives. I told you throughout the last few messages of how basically there were these continued warnings of judgment that were going to come on God's people if they don't repent, but finally the judgment had come, And so now here in Jeremiah 29, God is sending a letter through Jeremiah to the people who were suffering this punishment. After Jerusalem fell to King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, as I've been mentioning all along, thousands of Jews were deported to Babylon, where they were forced to assimilate with Babylonian culture. If you actually read the book of Daniel, it's a great insight into what that life looked like for the exiles. They were all required to eat Babylonian food and adapt Babylonian culture. If you know from guys like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were all stripped of their Jewish names, and they were forced to adapt Babylonian names. And so there was this whole process of reprogramming the people they conquered that the Babylonians were doing. And this is what happened to the Israelites. This was one of the darkest chapters in their history. As a nation, they were defeated and humiliated. For the Israelites, their identity was so closely linked with occupation of the promised land, which God told them he would give them, all the way to the days of Abraham. Uh, And so it was unthinkable that God would remove them from this land of promise. But that's exactly what God did. It's really interesting if you look at the geography of what's happening here. When Abraham, their forefather, was called, to God, called by God to leave your home and go to a place that I will show you, to a promised land, we're told that that calling happened in a city called Ur of the Chaldees. That, archaeologists tell us, was basically in modern-day Iraq, Okay? So eventually the Israelites make it to this promised land that was promised to their forefather Abraham. It's an area known as Canaan. If you could advance the slide. It's a place called Canaan, Palestine, okay? Israel. And so they live in this amazing land flowing with milk and honey for many years until God brings about this judgment on them. And they are now exiled to Babylon. What's so interesting about that is Babylon is basically right where Ur of the Chaldees is, okay? In modern-day Iraq as well. So it's interesting that God sends his people right back to where the whole story started. And it's as if everything that they've achieved in their history as a nation was completely wiped out. And now they were back at square one. They were in modern-day Iraq. Iraq. They were in the place that their forefather Abraham was originally called to leave. And so you could understand if the Israelites were feeling pretty discouraged, pretty hopeless. The heartache and anger of the exiles is captured in Psalm 137, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. And I just want to look at that again. It says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign country? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. It's not subtle, is it? (laughs) They are sad. They are angry. They don't like any of this one bit. But through these encouraging words of Jeremiah in chapter 29, God shows that he is using even this tragic event to lovingly discipline his children to turn their hearts back to him. And as I mentioned two weeks ago, the primary focus of that discipline is undoubtedly the broken relationship between them and God that they had turned their backs on him. And so the main focus was to bring them back to himself. That's clear in verses 12 to 13 of 29. It says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is the ultimate good that God wants to do, is to bring his people back to himself through this discipline. Once again, you will be devoted to me wholeheartedly. But there is another aspect of the discipline that God had to do with Israel. And it had to do not with their relationship to God, but their relationship to the world, to the other nations. Because God called Israel to be his witness to the nations, but they refused this calling. God called his people to be his witness to the nations, But they rejected that calling. They refused it. It's interesting that of all the empires that conquered Israel, why did God choose this empire of Babylon that had this peculiar practice of taking the people that they conquered and deporting them back to their own homeland where they were assimilated? It's an interesting question. And I think God did that intentionally because he planned for them to rediscover their calling in this foreign land to be a light to the nations. You see, because when God called Abraham, he called him to be the father of a great nation, and he made it clear in the calling that the purpose of that blessing that I'm going to bless you with is so that you in turn will become a blessing to all nations. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And then he says this, And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You know, Centuries later, God would give his law to his people through Moses, his servant. And in that law, it was to teach the Israelites the kind of life that pleased him, the kind of life that he desired from them. And in it, it is clear what his instructions are about how they are to treat people from other countries, foreigners, immigrants. And it says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18 to 19, he defends the cause of the fatherless. And the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing, and you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourself were foreigners in Egypt. Centuries after that, when they finally occupy the promised land, and David's son Solomon builds the temple, dedicating it to God in a prayer on that temple Mount in his prayer Solomon shows that he understands their calling as God's people to be a light to the nations and so in dedicating the temple this is what King Solomon says in 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 41 to 43 as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel but has come from a distant land because of your name for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when they come and pray toward this temple then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. There's this undeniable and relentless missionary aspect to the identity of God's people. And then when you get to the prophets hundreds of years after this, You see that same message echoed by prophet after prophet trying to remind the Israel of this identity, their people of this identity. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, he says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now, There are dozens of other Bible verses I could pull up to argue this case. But I think I've shown you enough of them to show you these aren't just a few scattered verses in the Bible. But the entire Old Testament rings with this message that I am going to bless you so that in turn you will be a blessing to the other nations of the world. But here is the problem, is that despite this wealth of evidence found in Scripture, the Israelites seem to have missed the entire point of their blessing, the entire point of their existence. And instead of using that blessing to bless the other nations, they selfishly hoarded those blessings to themselves. And in fact, they did the exact opposite. They hated the other nations. They looked down on them with pride because they were God's chosen people. And these pagans, well, they didn't deserve God's love. They weren't worthy of his mercy. And so they hated them. And so now God takes his people and he sends them to this world class city of Babylon, where these peculiar Babylonians have taken people from all over the world and brought them to the city to live in one place. So the nations are gathered in Babylon. And so God brings his people to Babylon and says, It is in this place that you're going to rediscover. My calling on your life and what the whole purpose of your existence is for. And if you remember from a few messages back, the false prophets went into overdrive doing their own PR campaign saying, Don't settle down here, don't be in despair, don't worry because this occupation, this whole situation that all of us hate, is only going to last less than two years. Don't build houses, don't plant farms. Because within two years, we'll all be back in Jerusalem in the good old days again. And talking about, wasn't that a crazy thing when we were in Babylon? But Jeremiah says, it's not going to be two years. It's going to be 70 years. And so in Jeremiah 29, verse 4 to 7, we see this command. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Build houses, plant your farms, plant your crops, because you're going to actually be here for a really long time. And then in verse 7, he gives them this specific detail on the nature of the mission that he's sending them on, and he says basically two things. He says, pray for the city, pray for the Babylonians, intercede on their behalf. And then he says, and seek the welfare, seek the good of these people. Do whatever you can to make Babylon a better city, a better place. I I think first we have to acknowledge what an unbelievably difficult message this would have been for the Israelites to hear. Because God is saying pray for the very people that have just killed your relatives, who've destroyed your homes, who sieged your city so that people were dying in the streets of starvation. Pray for those people. Christopher Wright says this, Spare a thought for the person who had to read out loud this letter publicly to the exiled community. Imagine the angry response to such words among people in the early throes of being captives of war in a foreign enemy land. We all know which city we should be praying for, and it certainly is not Babylon. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And we know that we want what what we want for Babylon, and it certainly is in peace. It was probably hard enough for the exile to imagine that they could pray they could pray to Yahweh in Babylon, let alone that they should pray to him for Babylon. It must have seemed impossible, theologically, emotionally, and politically. But Jeremiah insists that this is the task before them. Such. A responsibility turned mourners into missionaries. In other words, God was basically challenging his people, commanding his people. You got to get out of this nationalistic, tribal bent that you're on, in which all you care about is yourselves. And there you have to recognize that there is a mission that I'm calling you to fulfill. You are my servants to this world. And it goes beyond the welfare of Israel. I care about Babylon. I care about these people that are living in this city. That's what God is saying to Israel. That word that is translated repeatedly in this passage as welfare is actually the Hebrew word shalom, shalom. And usually that word shalom is translated as peace. But it can be a little misleading because when we think of peace, we usually think of like an inner peace, a state of calm in our heart. But when the word shalom is used in the Bible, it isn't referring to some inner peace inside a person's heart. It is almost always in reference to a community, a group of people. In other words, when the Bible uses shalom, it's talking about a peace that a community experiences. That's talking politically, economically, culturally, artistically, all because of God's influence on that community. Cornelius planning to describe shalom like this. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice. Fulfillment and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder at its creator and savior, opens, and, uh, opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. You know, in other words, shalom is the picture of society as God originally designed it to look like before sin entered it. It's a society where the poor are cared for so that nobody is in desperate crisis you can leave your bike unlocked at a store and when you come out of the store no one has stolen it or if you lose your wallet it's returned to you and all the cash is still intact it's a society in which the courts rule justly and everyone's rights are protected even the weakest and most vulnerable at work Everyone is paid a fair wage. And when it's busy season, everyone rallies around to help each other out. It's a society when people talk behind your back, they actually say good things about you and compliment you behind your back. It's a society where families are whole, where marriages are healthy, where children are raised protected and nurtured and cared for and loved. It's a society where everyone is valued regardless of the color of their skin or their income level. Now, here's the thing. When you hear a description like that, you say, yeah, that's so pie in the sky, it's ridiculous. And in a world that is broken by sin, the truth is the world, at least this side of heaven, is never going to fully look like that. It isn't. But here's the thing, is that God says that what I want of my people is to be agents of redemption, to let this world get glimpses of what he had always intended for our world by our witness and the way that we conduct ourselves in the broader society. That was what God was calling the Israelites to do in Babylon, seek the shalom of this city, of these people that you call your enemies. There are two words throughout the Old Testament that are very closely associated with this idea of shalom. And they are righteousness and justice. They're found throughout the book of Jeremiah as well. And I'm just going to show you two examples of it. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 3, it says, Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 13 to 17. Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels it with cedar, and decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just. So all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy. And so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord but your eyes and your heart are set only on dishonest gain on shedding innocent blood and on pres- on oppression and extortion here's the interesting thing is when we use righteousness and justice we almost always think of them as nouns but it's interesting how often these words are used as verbs in the old testament do justice do righteousness Also, when we think of that idea of doing justice, I think we usually think of it very narrowly as basically punishing those who are guilty of a crime. That's doing justice, right? But when the Bible uses that word doing justice, it uses it much more proactively, much more broadly to basically says doing justice means defending those who particularly are at risk to have their rights trampled on. And that's why almost every time that idea of justice comes up, it's associated with people like widows and orphans and the poor and immigrants. Because these are the ones who are in greatest risk of losing justice, who need protection, who need compassion. I think of the same is when we think of righteousness. We tend to think of righteousness as a very personalized thing. It's about my walk with God and am I living morally? but when you look at the word righteousness in the Bible it often has a very strong social dimension to it it's talking about the relationships that we carry with others and so to do righteousness is asking what are your relationships like with the people that surround you are you righteous toward them look at how job describes his righteousness and his justice In his own life. In Job 29, verse 14 to 16, it says this. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. Isn't that interesting? It says that's what righteousness and justice look like in my life. I was eyes to the blind. I was a father to the fatherless, the needy. This is what I want to say. I'm losing my voice. I realize I'm getting too excited here because I'm shouting so much. I'm trying to pace myself now. Otherwise, I'm going to to be hoarse by the end of this message. Let me say it like this. If your righteousness is limited only to avoiding personal sin and you are not generously helping those in need, According to God, your righteousness is incomplete. And I want this truth to sink in a little in your heart. It's saying you can live a life of personal holiness. You don't fall into all the temptations. You don't watch certain shows on Netflix that everyone else watches because it's gone viral. You, you, you keep yourself poor, pure. You're not addicted to porn and you're not into all this stuff that everyone else is into. But the truth is, you live a very quiet life in which your basic motto is, I don't bother anybody else, and I just don't want them to bother me. You can live that kind of life, and God would say, your righteousness is incomplete. That's not the righteousness of God. If there isn't some generous, sacrificial, outwardly oriented aspect to your righteousness some missional expression to you, helping those who are in greatest need of help. God says, you may have personal holiness, but your holiness is not whole until you are helping others and loving those who can least help themselves. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, I think encapsulates the entirety of what it means to walk with God. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? It's really two big buckets there. Be intimate with me, your Creator. Walk with me. Love me. Have a relationship with me, your God. And then out of that relationship, let justice flow out of your life. The same. Sentiment is echoed in the New Testament. James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He says that's pretty much the sum of the Christian life. Two things. Keep yourself pure in this evil world. Don't allow yourself to get stained by its influence. Guard your heart, protect yourself, and then go out there and lavishly love the world and do justice wherever injustice is found by you. Of course, our ultimate aim in doing mission is to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ so that every person would have a personal relationship with him and give their life to him. But doing justice and righteousness are a key part of this witness. This generous, outwardly facing life is something that we cannot generate by ourselves. It has to come from God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 to 10. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you see the whole picture there? We are recipients of God's grace when we did not deserve it. And when you become saved, God says, everyone that I save, I send on my mission. I put you on mission on my behalf to do justice, to do righteousness in this world so that others might know who I am through those good works that I've ordained for you to do and if I could just challenge you this morning with this thought is that where your heart is this morning maybe as a result of this sermon you're hearing this morning what your prayer needs to be before God is this God break my heart with the things that break your heart break my heart with the things that break your heart this is a this is a time when we need to be honest because the truth is maybe you heard everything that Michelle said and showed those pictures of Africa and Indonesia and you can be honest you see my heart wasn't moved at all I don't know all of these mission presentations we get at ICC all sort of blur into one thing we had the you know uh, Andrew and Nikki come, and then you know before that you know after that we had the crossing borders thing with Dan about refugees from North Korea and the truth is maybe if you're really honest none of this really moves you. And the truth is you're still just going on living a very self-centered life of just it's about me and my family and my job and I'm obsessed with what my next promotion is going to be and what house we're going to move and which suburb we're going to relocate to. And I'm saying there, there just needs to be a place of honesty where we come before God and say break my heart with these things that break your heart. Because I don't feel what you feel for these people, God. Because I think the truth was that was the testimony of these Israelites. Look at Psalm 137. I want to take their babies and smash their heads into rocks. That's how I feel about the Babylonians. I don't want to pray for the shalom of these people. I hate these people. But what God says, Psalm 68, verse 5 says, A father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling Psalm 149 verse 146 verse 9 the Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow that's what God's saying is that's where my heart is my heart breaks for the very people you hate for the people you consider your enemies the people that you have no blood relation to and so you say why do I care about these people I got my own worries to worry about and God says you need to worry about them because I worry about them. and My heart breaks for them. And if you are my child, then your heart needs to break for them as well. You know, there was this whole last election cycle and, you know, Trump is our <clears throat> president now. I'm not going to get into the whole politics of it, okay? I'm not, I'm not going to stand behind this pulpit and take sides as to what I think should have happened and all that. But I want to make this observation about where things seem to stand right now in America and the culture wars is that it seems to me that we as evangelical Christians have postured ourselves in this very adversarial relationship with the world. And it's a very self-serving, very self-indulgent posture That's very self-protecting and saying, you know, we've got to do what we need to do in this country to protect ourselves, to protect our rights. And here is the truth, is there's no doubt about it that Christianity is under attack in America. It is. And I don't make light of that. There are plenty of segments of this society that would love to crush evangelical Christians. But why I raise this issue is, what is our response supposed to be to this hatred that we encounter? Is it to politicize our faith and try to get as many of our people into office so that we can have our rights protected? Are we trying to legislate our way to the life that we want for ourselves? Because if I look at what the the whole thrust of Scripture seems to be telling us, it is, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Go out there and seek the ones who are least protected. There are people way less protected than evangelical Christians in America. And he says, even in the face of what you are suffering, it's not about a culture war to attack back because we're attacked. It's go help the fatherless, seek out the poor, the lame, the ones who are greatest in need of my love. Do justice do righteousness and be my people in every generation, in every setting. And I think that's a correction that needs to happen in the American church today. What does it mean for us to live in the broader culture in America and to really have the heart of God in our own heart and the way that we treat our fellow citizens here in this country? Well, let me try to just wrap things up here by giving you a few thoughts here. I think first is this. We need a global perspective on doing justice and righteousness. I want to say this. Doing justice and righteousness has become an incredibly complicated thing in the 21st century. We talk about this phenomenon of globalization. And one of the results of globalization is that we live in the consuming part of the world. And we as the biggest consumers of every, any country in, America, in this world don't actually see the horrible cost of all this consumption because it happens across the ocean in a world that we never actually come in touch with unless you go overseas and see what's happening and so it's really changed the landscape i think in a lot of ways of what it means to do justice and to do righteousness you gotta, to do justice and to be righteous, you gotta do your homework first and understand what's happening uh... there was a documentary that came out a little while ago called the true cost and it exposed the dirty side of the fashion industry in light of the globalization that's happening the, the whole area of apparel and clothing and high fashion is just one example of this and i want to show you the trailer from the documentary If you have Netflix, it's there on Netflix. Go and watch it tonight if you want, okay? I can send you a link to a dozen of these documentaries that can begin to educate you on what's happening around this world. I want to show you the trailer. It's just going to go for a couple minutes, and then we'll go on and keep exploring. Documentary just highlights the fashion industry, but you could go to the food industry, the electronic gadget industry, and go across the board. And When you actually realize where the things that we're consuming constantly come from, and that just gave you a shot of what some of the factories look like and the kind of conditions people are living in. And we love it. You, know, you can go to a department store, and goods have never been cheaper than they are in our generation. Right? You can buy a pretty decent shirt for like $10. And we celebrate that and say, I got a great deal. And so you fill your closet with dozens of them that you'll never wear. And this entire consumeristic attitude that we have and what it is doing globally around the world is heartbreaking. And I'm saying there are no easy slogans here of do this and you'll solve these problems, okay? There is advocacy to be done by Christians here. There's about consuming patterns that we have to look at. There are these ways that we can become educated about how we can be involved with justice and righteousness in a world that is so unjust and so unrighteous. The disparity is not only economic, but it's also religious. There are still so many, Christianity is concentrated in some very discrete pockets globally. That's why we still need global missions today. That's why Michelle is going to get on an airplane and go to Indonesia. And so there is still a call for us living in America to look outside the borders of our country and see where is it that the gospel witness needs to break through And we ought to do whatever we can to support that missionary enterprise, to bring the gospel to the darkest places where Christ is not known. And then lastly, and I'll close with this, we need a local perspective on doing justice and righteousness as well. We need to look at Indonesia, look at Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, and think about all of these places where there's just so much material and spiritual need but I also want to say we also have to look right in our own neighborhood and consider what is it here in the Chicagoland area that God may be calling me to get involved and I want to say that that same dynamic that happens globally is happening locally here in that we have kept the need to some pretty discreet ghettos in Chicagoland and so living in suburbia in America you never have to touch the ugliness of poverty you will not walk through downtown Wheeling and be confronted by a panhandler. You will not see a mother with a baby that looks emaciated sitting in a street corner in Northbrook or in Glenview. And the truth is, you know, we are so consumer-oriented even here in Chicago, right? I mean we're living in the top 1% echelon globally but even here in Chicago we're dissatisfied because we have ranked all the suburbs you know and you know like my kid goes to a school that's ranked in the 95th percentile for school districts but right next to me a suburb that hits the 99th percentile and so I want to move my kids to that school district listen I know I'm probably stepping on some toes here you know but I worry that we as God's people have basically drunk the poison of this world and we live for the same values that this world lives for we're no different we want the same things out of life that they want and I I think when we look at Jeremiah chapter 29 it's this cry of God to say that's not where my heart is that's not what I long for for my people I'm not just your Santa Claus to keep upgrading everything you have and calling that my blessing. That's not what you're about or what I'm about. My heart breaks for the fatherless, for the widow, for the immigrant, for those whose rights are being trampled on, who cannot put food on the table that night. And I think what God is saying is, where are my people who represent that heart of mine for the lost? I don't think this can happen by guilt. Guilt can get you so far, but it can't get you across the finish line. I think it has to ultimately be the work of God in our heart that softens us enough to get serious about this aspect of our identity. I think the truth is this for most of us who are saying, I'm going to sock away money to our 401k plan get my retirement all set up. I'm gonna buy the dream house I want. I'm gonna make sure my kid's college fund is fully vested. And then, hey, if there's a left over, a little something, and we get another hurricane, I'll be there for that love offering. But don't hit me up twice a quarter, because then I'm gonna get donor fatigue. And I I really don't wanna be a part of a church that's always trying to hit my wallet. And I think this is the mentality in America today. And when I look in the Bible, it is so different. The picture that God paints, what His will is for His people, to be lavish in our generosity to those who are in greatest need. And I just picture how differently Christians might be viewed in America if that became our rallying cry instead of this constant political battle we're fighting against the broader culture of trying to defend our rights. And maybe surrendering our rights even in the midst of the hostility that we see and saying, I want to love those who are unloved in the world around me. Let's pray. As we go into a time of response, I I, I recognize that this is not an easy message to hear. And I'll be the first to admit that even transitioning out of our life in Africa, coming back here to America eight years ago I feel like I'm no different in a lot of ways I've drunk that poison too because there's something so subtle and yet so powerful about the draw of American culture this consumer mindset that just keeps putting the spotlight on me what do I want for my life what do I want for my kids what do I want for my family and somewhere in pursuing that good because it is a good I'm not saying abandon your family I'm not saying don't care about your kids' education. These are important things, but the poison of it is that in pursuing those things, we totally lose sight of the biggest picture of what God has created us for. And we epically miss the point of our existence of what God had saved us. Jesus told his disciples freely you have received, now freely give. Go in my name. And because you believe, others will know that I live. And I think that that is something that we need to wrestle with in our own hearts. And maybe the place to start in that wrestling is the place of honesty. Like I said earlier in the message. Break my heart with the things that break your heart, God. Because I don't feel it. It doesn't really move me. I got other things that preoccupy my mind. But I want that heart, God. I want to know your heart for those who are suffering injustice. God, would would you, through the work of your Holy Spirit, come into my heart? And would you soften it? Because when I look at my own heart, I acknowledge that it's just so self-focused. I'm always filled with self-pity, always upset about what is not going right in my life for me. And I want to be able to take my eyes off of myself And see where your heart is, God. But I need you to do that work in me. So soften my heart. And help me to see what you see. Would you just pray that for a few minutes as our worship team comes to lead us in a time of response.